0: Good morning, church. Would you please open your Bible to the Gospel of Luke this morning? For those of you who are visiting with us this morning, this marks an anniversary in the life of our church. We're beginning the Gospel of Luke this morning. And this morning we'll be looking at the first four verses, which make sort of a preface to Luke. I'll get into that in just a moment. And I'm going to read these words now. And we'll ask God's blessing on our time. Remember as I read that these are the words of the Lord. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty about the things that you have been taught. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Let's ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Father, it has been prayed twice now, we come here this morning because we are a people in need of your life-giving word. We need it, Lord. And the word, the revelation of God, has just been read over your people now. But what follows is an expounding of the passage and then applying it to the lives of each person. And I pray that you would help me now to do that and allow the Spirit to move freely through this room so that people might receive nourishment from your Word, perhaps even be given new life in Christ today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a few weeks ago, I started listening to the story of British explorer Ernest Shackleton's 1914 quest to be the first man to cross the continent of Antarctica on foot. Five days after the outbreak of World War I, but still under the permission and good graces of then First Lord of the Admiralty, William Winston Churchill, Shackleton set sail for the South Pole on the 8th of August. This coming Tuesday will mark 109 years since that event took place. Hopes were high for the success of the expedition. They had strong leadership. They had a courageous crew. And their ship was a marvel of modern engineering. It was the last of its kind. It was a wooden vessel constructed with timber... Harder than cast iron. And a powerful steam engine for breaking up dense packs of ice. Which was intended to be used constantly in the frozen Weddell Sea. Everyone was ready for that fight and hoping to quickly achieve the drop point. But Providence would have them encounter some rather difficult trials. After months of slow plotting... The boat stopped in a massive ice flow and eventually froze in place not far from their intended landing zone. There, there, she would drift for about eight months through the long Arctic winter. And as the southern spring began to thaw the ice, massive bergs compacted and slammed against the side of the hull. She began to take on water and was eventually crushed under the weight of all of the birds. Shackleton and his men, having previously evacuated, watched as the mighty bulk of the arc of their survival was swallowed up under millions of tons of compacting ice. As they made camp on the floating ice and contemplated their hopeless situation, at this time they had no telephone, radio, or any means of communication, They looked one last time on the wreckage of the ship and they thought about her name. Just before they had set sail from England, Shackleton had christened her the Endurance. Now, that may seem like an engaging story to open our study with, but why at the start of Luke? Isn't this gospel just a recounting of the ministry of Jesus Christ? That's what it's here for. Right. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're a Gentile convert to the early preaching of the apostles. There's a lot of hype and energy at this time. Hearing the stories of the resurrection and of the ascension to heaven of Jesus. Miracles being done by His disciples. And signs and wonders and tongues and prophecies. And then, slowly but surely... The world, the flesh, and the devil surround your brand new church family like the ice-surrounded Shackleton ship. And they begin to close in and crush the flourishing movement. You suddenly feel vulnerable. You're scared. You feel alone. You begin hearing all kinds of conflicting stories about the God-man that you have come to know as your Redeemer, And you start to question if this whole King Jesus thing is really all that you were told. Or is it worth losing your life over? You enlisted under a banner of him who claimed all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. But his game plan, at this point, seems to be failing miserably. And then, a Gentile convert like yourself Walks in with a book in his hands. And he says to you, I've done quite a bit of research, hours of investigation. I've compiled all the data. You are on the right path, brother. Our captain never said that this would be an easy voyage or a quick victory, but it is sure to succeed. Here's the evidence. So let's stay the course, let's endure. Now as we head back into the New Testament this morning, I want us to do a little bit of mental recalibration as we proceed. Luke is, many of you know, one of the synoptic Gospels. That's the three Gospels that frequently will parallel one another's narratives throughout the story. Though much of the material that we will cover in this study is repeated in Matthew and Mark, There is significant exclusivity to Luke. He records history and parables from the life of Jesus that no other gospel contains. Allow me to give you an example. Matthew begins his genealogy with Abraham, while Luke starts all the way back beginning the genealogy with Adam. And there are rich theological reasons for which he does so. We'll get to those in the coming chapters. Also, Luke chapters 9 to 19 contain a hefty cluster of parabolic teaching from the Lord Jesus. And out of 17 anecdotes that he delivers in those pages, 15 of them are unique to the gospel of Luke. Including the prodigal son story that I'm sure you're familiar with. In that section of text alone, chapters 9 to 19... Almost 50% of the material is found solely in the Gospel of Luke. Perhaps you've heard that Luke is the longest of the four Gospels. I was talking to a brother about that this morning before church began. In the Nestle Allen Greek New Testament, which is arguably the most reliable compilation of Greek manuscripts that we possess today, Luke occupies 96 pages of Greek text, while its closest companion, Matthew, takes up only 87. The beloved physician, as he was commonly known, you can see Colossians 4.14 for that name, was a very thorough investigator, and he was not afraid to spill some ink on a project, which was an expensive undertaking, and we'll come to that in just a few minutes. A matter of fact, if you put a word count... From Luke's pen up against every other writer in the New Testament, including taking all of the epistles of Paul and combining them together, Luke wrote more of the New Testament than anybody else. It's amazing. This is also another way of saying that Jesus could return or you could become a great grandparent before we're finished preaching through Luke. (laughs) Just setting expectations. Luke is also the only gospel with a sequel. Have you considered that? Though separated canonically by the book of John, Luke and Acts are indivisible from one another. Theologian Daryl Bach said that Luke's gospel often lays the foundation work for many of the issues for which the answers come in Acts. He begins by laying that groundwork through Jesus' teaching, and then Acts answers how that plays itself out. Go back to what I said a moment ago about exhorting the saints to endure through hardship. Consider, God sends His Messiah. His own people reject Him. They murder Him. He comes back to life and assures them that He will be with them always. But then the godless come after them, hunt them, lynch them, stone them, imprison them. Yet Luke is reminding his readers in this one-part, two-part series that this is all part of God's plan, his agenda, his perfectly crafted blueprint for how he is surely going to win back the world. And by the end of Acts, you can already taste the beginnings of the sweetness of it. After all that the church went through, Paul is in Rome, about to stand before the emperor with the hand grenade of the gospel ready to go. What if Caesar is converted right there? What then? Acts leaves that part of the story out, and we know more about history now. But imagine, you're a first century reader reading through Luke and then Acts, and you're left anticipating what happens next. By the way, it is a historical fact that 300 years after the birth of Jesus' church, the rulers of the Roman world were, in fact, converted to Christ. And Christianity subsequently spread all across the globe. God did it once. Can He not do it again? Can He not do it again? Let us look to Christ in His Word As we look in Luke, and let's endure our own trials so that we too may come to the day when we see it take place. Now this brings us to a major question in the Gospel of Luke. One that he deals with both here and also follows up in Acts. Is Jesus the Savior strictly for Israel, or is He the Savior for all people? All the Gospels deal with different themes. Matthew shows that Jesus is in fact the King of Israel. He's the King. Mark displays Christ as the suffering servant, the Paschal Lamb of Isaiah 53. John proves convincingly that Jesus Christ is in fact God incarnate, God in the flesh. But Luke's mission is to show that Jesus is not only the Savior, of ethnic Israel, but He is the Savior for all men. He is the Savior for everyone. This book is frequently referred to as the gospel for the Gentiles. Think about that for a minute. This is our gospel. Think everybody, and here's a Gentile. All right. This is ours. Think with me for just a minute. Think about Psalm 22. Remember the psalm that begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words of Christ from the cross. King David, king of ethnic Israel, God's chosen people, you remember. He declares at the end of that psalm, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to Yahweh. And all the families of the nations will worship before Yahweh. Their seed will serve Him. They will come and will declare His righteousness to a people who will be born, that He has Done it. Now wait just a second. The nations worshiping Yahweh? How strange was that for David to say? And how is that supposed to happen? The stinking, vile, sin-laden, unclean, pagan Gentiles? God would bring them in? How is He going to swing that? The answer, of course, is through the central figure in the book of Luke and also the central figure in the whole Bible and all of human history because he created history and saves it and sustains it and will bring it to a glorious climax. And that is through the God-man, Jesus Christ. Luke shows that God's plan all along was to make good on his promise through the prophets of old that he would send his Messiah, his Christ, To save his people. And that people would include people from every language. And from every nation and tribe and tongue. And class system and gender and level of affluence or lack thereof. Jesus, Luke, contends. Can save anybody. No matter what society thinks of them. This is why Luke frequently deals with, throughout his narrative, those forgotten groups such as the Gentiles, or the poor, or women, particularly widows, and children. Throughout the book, Jesus encounters, for example, speaks to and spends more time with women than any other New Testament writing. Right here in the Gospel of Luke. One professor called Luke the ladies' home journal of the Bible. The purpose of this, however, again, is to show that God's saving work in Christ knows no bounds. That people of Jesus, that all the people of Jesus know Him. All of them know Him from the least to the greatest. So lost person who's hearing my voice right now, what are you waiting for? Jesus has offered Himself for all lost people at no cost. It doesn't matter how you've sinned or hated God. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. Like those who were just baptized moments ago, would you declare now that you are done with your sin and ready to submit to Jesus Christ as Lord? Then do so. You don't have to wait till the end of the sermon. Don't wait for me to get finished speaking. You can repent even now turning from sin and turning to Christ and embracing Him as Lord and Savior. All who do so will be saved. Lastly, Luke is called the gospel of the Holy Spirit. The power and work of the Holy Spirit are center stage throughout this narrative. He was promised by John the Baptist in chapter 3 and quickly moves into the role of, as one commentator put it, the testifier and enabler for all of Jesus' ministry. This is further confirmation to Luke's fledgling Gentile audience that though Jesus has ascended to heaven, He still guides and directs the affairs of His church by the eternal Trinitarian connection through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Now, before we begin looking into our text this morning, I want to give you a brief outline for the entire book of Luke. There are five points, and I'll try and go over these more than once for those of you who are avid note takers. We are going to refer back to this frequently. Number one, Luke's preface and introduction of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. That's chapters one to chapter, or through chapter two. Chapters one and two, Luke's preface and the introduction of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Number two, preparation for ministry and anointing by God. That's chapters three through four verse 13. So just a brief two points of introduction, very brief chapters. Remember number two is preparation for ministry and anointing by God, chapter three through 4:13. Number three, Jesus' Galilean ministry. The revelation of Jesus to the people of Galilee. That's 414 to 9, verse 50. Galilean ministry, revelation of Jesus, 414 to 950. Number four, the Jerusalem journey, Jewish rejection and the new way. That's when Jesus is traveling from Galilee back down to Jerusalem. He's on that long journey. That's where all those parables are that I mentioned. And this is 951 to 1944. 951 to chapter 19, verse 44. And then lastly, number five, Jerusalem, the innocent one slain and raised. That's 1945 to the end of the book 24, verse 53. That's our outline. We'll be referring back to that frequently as we go through. So you can kind of set a tone or a pace in your mind for where we are in the narrative and the main thrust that Luke is getting to in this gospel. Well, let's look at our text this morning. It's, a, as I mentioned in the opening, a four-verse prologue to the gospel of Luke. And it's here that we find out the cause, the audience, and the purpose of this book. This is such... Valuable information, all packed into these first four verses. You might read through those real quick, scan them. Maybe it's worded a little funny. You see the name Theophilus. I wonder who that guy is. And then let's just get to Jesus. Let's move on. Extremely valuable material right here in the first four verses of Luke. Cause, audience, and purpose. I want to begin with purpose. Look down at verse four briefly. The purpose of the work. Why is Luke writing? He says, so that you may know the certainty about the things that you have been taught. So that you may know the certainty about the things that you have been taught. The key word here is asphalia. It's Greek. It means the validity, the reliability, the firmness, the stability. I especially love the NASB 95 rendering of this word. The exact truth. Excellent. Luke's recipient lacked assurance of what he had believed. So Luke is writing to make sure that he is confident. He is sure of it. He knows the exact truth of it. Like Tom Cruise's character, character Daniel Caffey in the 92 courtroom drama, A Few Good Men, the reader wants the truth. And Luke is confident that he, in fact, can handle that truth. (laughs) Now, what was the cause of this truth project, if you will? What had shaken this person's faith? What was causing him confusion or doubt? The answer is twofold. It comes in verses 1 and 2. There are already many writings about Jesus, and there were already many eyewitness testimonies. About Jesus. Luke opens verse 1 with the announcement that many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. You may read that and think, that's a good thing, right? Lots of manuscripts, lots of materials. Yes, in some ways it is a very good thing. It's estimated that Luke was written in the early 60s AD, and there were at this point numerous publications. Already, numerous publications of the life, ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus. There were no editors telling their reporters, plug Jesus. They didn't have to. The story was heavy in the news cycle. It had been told and retold. Additionally, many of those early accounts of the life of Jesus came straight from statements of witnesses present For either some, or perhaps all, of the teachings of the Christ of God. Verse 2 says, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. So from these two verses, we can conclude these two things. Number one, Luke had personal knowledge of many dictations from the apostles and those who ministered alongside of them and perhaps many more. Number two, Luke was also aware of and able to sift through a torrent of written dispatches of God's advent on earth. He had all that material. He'd done careful research. He'd looked through it and tried to arrange it in an orderly fashion. Christians today often brag about the many accounts and manuscripts we have of the New Testament Documents And they are truly a blessing to our confidence in the reliability of our New Testament. But we also have the benefit of thousands of churchmen over two millennia having, just like Luke did here, sifted through the good, the bad, and the ugly. And some of what was written in the early church days, before Luke wrote, was really, really bad. Very bad. Bad enough to make all the naked angel statues at Cedar Springs Christian Bookstore blush bad. That bad. False accounts of miracles and wild heresies abounded in the Near East during that time. The Gnostic heresy quickly became the third way of the church. Some things never change. And sinful persons frequently exploited the popularity of the new faith for personal gain. All you had to do was put the gospel of at the front of your letterhead, and you were almost guaranteed to have a bestseller. Everybody wanted to read about this. Early church fathers Eusebius and Ambrose mentioned several apocryphal accounts during that time that caused problems for the newly birthed church. They mentioned the gospel of Basilides, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel according to Matthias, all of which and there are many more besides these, contain serious errors of history and theology. So the term many might have posed a little bit of a problem, at least for this man named Theophilus. Now couple that to the fact that the persecution from not just Jews, but Romans was becoming a major factor at this point. Nero's attack on the church began in 64 AD, and already the drums are beating of that coming persecution, you begin to understand why the reader was having maybe a bit of a faith crisis, if you will. Luke had his work cut out for him. Now, look with me at verse 3. Luke says, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in an orderly sequence. Now keep in mind that Mark, and likely Matthew, had already been written at this time. This isn't Luke's tacit critique of the other two Gospels. He's aiming to compile the evidence from them, especially Mark, Luke draws heavily from the Gospel of Mark, and all the other materials circulating in such a way that the true story and teachings of Jesus Christ come together and make sense to the reader, particularly a reader who in this case is likely not Jewish. And we'll get to that in just a minute. R.C. Sproul summarized it this way. Luke has arranged his gospel in a systematic, logical, and readable structure. He does this so that we can make sense of both, catch these two things, the patterns of Jesus' teaching and the movement of his life. He wants to pay attention to these clusters of teaching which give a thrust to the gospel. This is what this gospel is about. This is all that Jesus was teaching. This is what he's saying to help us. And then in addition to that, how did Jesus move from place to place throughout his life? That's why Luke wanted to order his gospel the way that he did. Consider, church, the Lord has brought this gospel to us in the same way a good shepherd would bring his sheep into green pastures and beside still waters. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Luke has done all of the homework for us. He's compiled the material into his forge. He's removed the dross of the air. He's hammered out the narrative that is tailor-made for those outside of the Israelite community with limited knowledge of the Old Testament faith. All we have to do, beloved, is attend to the Word of God and abide there with our Savior and Lord. Are you ready to give yourself anew to the study of this particular book of the Bible? And I don't just mean on Sunday mornings either. This last Friday, Jason Chandler spoke to the men about personal and home self-defense. All of the information was very good, and I've been to several talks like that before, so much of the information I had heard before, but a meeting like that has a different kind of effect on a man, namely... The kind of effect of saying, hey, get off your tush and do something about it, mister. That kind of effect. Hey, are you doing anything about this? Are you caring for your family? Are you protecting them? You know this stuff. What are you going to do with it? And as we enter into what will likely be an extended season in this text, I exhort you, church, give yourself to this gospel. Give yourself to it. Don't come here each Sunday morning, having starved all week long, And expect like a baby bird to have food regurgitated into your mouth. Now I know that sounds a little crass to say that about the preaching. And I intend with each sermon to set a beautiful table of feasting from the Word of God. I work all week for it. But God made you to eat every single other day of the week too. You have to have nourishment. Consider in the coming months giving special attention to the passages that we'll be going through. Tammy and I are continuing to listen to the readings on the CTK app. We want to try and continue to keep up with that. But we're also spending much of our personal devotion time right here in this third gospel. I would encourage you to consider doing the same. Now, we come to a very important question in the text. Luke's audience. We have talked about the purpose. We talked about the cause. Now let's talk about the audience. From verse 3, you read there in the Legacy Standard Bible, Most Excellent Theophilus. Who is he? What do we know about him? A cargo frigate's worth of ink has been spilled, quarreling over the identity of this specific individual. There's all sorts of conversations going on among commentators, biblical scholars. Who is he? Is he a Greek? Is he a Roman? Does he have a Semitic background, as did the devout of Cornelius um, from Acts chapter 10? Is his name a pseudonym for someone else? Is Luke writing, potentially, to more than one person? Now, why would I say that? Well, the name Theophilus is only used twice in the Scriptures, here in chapter 1, and also in the opening verse of Acts. Let me read that for you. The first account, O Theophilus... I, that's Luke, composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up into heaven. Now, the name Theophilus comes from two Greek words. The Greek word theos, meaning God, and the Greek word phileo, which means love, a kind of familial love, a brother love. Placed together, they mean something along the lines of beloved of God or lover of God. Depending on how you read it. So, Luke could, in fact, be writing to a group of Christians. Perhaps a particular Gentile church that he's thinking of. Perhaps he's speaking to Christians at large. Anyone who is a lover of God or is beloved of God. This book is written for you. Now, I think originally, however, when Luke penned this work, that's not what he was doing. Personally, I'm not convinced that he was writing specifically this gospel, to a group of people. The Greek here is singular, and it's in the vocative case. Cases are something that I'm going to mention frequently as we go through the New Testament and we go through this gospel. In Greek, they're a system of classifying types of nouns. The vocative case is used when someone is being directly addressed. Not necessarily the first word in the sentence, But you know they are clearly the intended subject. I have a need, O Dustin, of the assistance of a deacon. That's the vocative case. Now, you'll frequently see this case used in the Scriptures, speaking to persons of high rank. From Acts chapter 26, Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Felix but I utter words of sober truth. In addition, Luke adds the tag kratiste, which is Greek, highly esteemed one, and it's a title often used of Roman nobility, making a strong case that Theophilus was more than just a street sweeper. Furthermore, most biblical scholars think that being himself financially well-off Theophilus personally underwrote Luke's investigation into the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. Now that makes perfect sense to me. This is an expensive endeavor. The parchment needed to write down all the materials that Luke had to write down was itself alone a fortune. Very expensive. And then all the investigation time, all the time away from Luke's regular occupation, if he was a physician all that time away so he can go from town to town and get the data, get the eyewitness accounts, get those manuscripts in front of him and compile it all together. He had to have some financial support. Also, verse 4 states that Theophilus wanted certainty. That's what he was after. I need somebody to help me out. I need to know for sure that what I believe is the truth. It's interesting that this being the case, a man of very high social standing is responsible today for the gospel that we're going to be studying over the coming months. turns out you don't have to deny your privilege to serve Jesus in the kingdom after all. He's a man. He was a Greek, part of the ethnic majority of the time. He was also a Roman who held a place of great power and prestige in the empire He was financially loaded, potentially. Theophilus is an ancient intersectional nightmare. (laughs) And here you are, hundreds of generations later, sitting in the freest country in the world, in the most beautiful part of that country, I might add, (laughs) in a mostly air-conditioned room, holding the very words of God himself in your lap. And you've inherited all of these blessings in part due to this gospel, in part because God used a man like Theophilus. And God used a man like Theophilus in his weakness. How backward and imbecilic are the ways of our world today. The prophet Isaiah says, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The psalmist declares, These things you have done, and I, Yahweh, have kept silent. You thought that I was just like you. I will reprove you and state the case in order before your eyes. That's from Psalm 50. We are told today, in order to be like Jesus, deny your privilege, sell all you have, become a janitor, embrace your lowness. And that's not how God chose Theophilus. He looked at the man's heart. He saw a man clinging to his faith, but struggling to believe and remaining steadfast. Was it worth the price of losing all that he had worked to attain? He needed some assurances from a brother who had walked with the apostles or been associated with them and seen things done and things studied and thoroughly investigated these matters. God had been preparing Theophilus for this moment all of his life. And at the very least, through his request to Luke, though I believe there was financial support as well, God is even to this day preparing us with the truth of Christ's life and using this to help us to be consistent in his teachings, to stay steadfast and endure till the end. Our family recently went through the story of the prophet Samuel's selection of young David for the crown of Israel. You know how the story goes. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. But as I told our children, our world has a subtle way of saying looking at the heart means looking at the outward appearance. You just look for people who are really underprivileged. And then you know because they're underprivileged, they have a really good heart. That's not what Samuel was told to do by the Lord. This is theological nonsense. God said, you shall not do injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but you shall judge your neighbor in righteousness. That's what he's talking about. You see, I, God, I see into the heart. That's how I make my choices. I'm not going to be partial to the poor and I'm not going to be partial to the rich. He looks at the heart. Brethren, you don't have to give up your good paying job or quit trying to grow your business or abandon thinking about taking a county commission seat because these are all inherently prideful thoughts and God would never use anyone who would dare to be so daft. God used the most unexpected of persons to bring us this beautiful gospel of Luke. And before I leave this section, just consider for a moment. I told my kids this last night. uh, Last night I told this to my children as we were reading through these first four verses in preparation for this morning. God is, in fact, a literary genius. He's a literary genius. Because he did choose a man, and I think he was a historical figure, Theophilus. Theophilus, by the way, was a popular name back then in both Greek and Jewish circles. So this was a very common name. But he chose a man named Theophilus, whose name means lover of God, or beloved of God. So, in fact, though it was written to a historical figure, you can read this gospel, and in the opening pages, see that this is here for you, lover of God. This is here for you, beloved one of the Father. This is here for you so that you may have confidence, so that you may know and be sure of everything that Jesus taught, and how to live for Him, so that you may endure through to the end. I want to conclude with some application from this text, but first let me go back to the story of Ernest Shackleton that I mentioned at the beginning, the story of the endurance. One of the most marvelous things about that timeless story of survival and grit is that the 100 plus members of the crew were during those years that they were in danger of exposure and starvation. After they evacuated the ship, they made camp on floating icebergs. They weren't on the land. They floated around in the Weddell Sea for almost a year. Those men in that kind of danger, you read the account of them and they were were filled with all kinds of joy. It's wild. How? How can a person face so much hardship and maintain that kind of mirth? The answer is they remembered that this is exactly what they had signed up for. We're leaving behind our families and our freedoms and entertainment and eating, and we are setting out for adventure to accomplish something that no human being has ever done before, and we expect it'll be hard. The ship was called the Endurance, after all, not Champagne on Deck or Couples Therapy. Now, we've dealt with a number of themes and I really want to drill down into this because this is where it gets really good and this is where we all want to be. We've dealt with a number of themes since we were planted in 2021 and one that has come up from Peter through Ezra and Nehemiah and now in Luke is perseverance, endurance. It comes up again and again in the text as I read and as we study together. Let me ask you, fathers, Are you enduring the trials and hardships of work and husbanding and child-rearing with joy? Have you been looking regularly into the perfect law of liberty in order to live? What will you do now that you have heard that Luke was written primarily to help you remember that your life in Christ will be challenging? And you enlisted with the understanding that it would be so. And the profit of the investment of your talents and the assessment of your masculine virtue will be that you rose above the calamities predestined for you and stayed the way of the master with a mirthy smile. Wives, are you frustrated with the way that your life is going right now? Or perhaps very fearful? Do you wish sometimes that you had more control over the world or your husband? or your children, or your friends, or perhaps even your own body? Have you forgotten that God is sovereign to bring difficulty in all of these areas? Now, will you run to the fountain, which water source never runs dry? What reasons can you give for neglecting attention to daily Bible reading? Do you consider devotion to the Word of God a guy thing? Or are there too many other duties that you just can't? ignore have you considered that you are burnt out because you've stopped looking into that same perfect law of liberty which reminds you that jesus is in control and you can in fact trust him christian children does the word of god seem confusing to you or boring Is that your excuse for not giving it your attention or affections? Would you just rather read some good fiction? Read a good story? Do you see your friends here dealing with hardship or weighed down with difficulty at home or school and wish you could do something about it? Do you believe that God's word was meant to give them life at times like this? Do you know it well enough in order to offer that help to them when they have need? Now, Still drilling down, past the application, get to the bottom. Here it is. At Wednesday night prayer, Dustin asked the Father in his prayer Wednesday night that we would get to see a lot of Jesus in this study. That's the part that I'm looking forward to the most as well. And this is really the point of it all. I mean, I've said thus far that Luke wrote to Theophilus So he could assure him of what he believed and remain steadfast. But why? How? What's going to happen? What's the event that's going to take place in his heart? What's going to well up inside of him that's going to say, Yes, my God has made me so mighty, I can stand against a troop. I can jump over a wall. What is going to do that? What would Theophilus read about that give him all of that energy and all of that joy? And that is the man, Christ Jesus. The purpose of the gospel was to assure and give confidence, leading to endurance, to a man struggling to remain steadfast, but the substance, the power, the battery of it all. The one means by which this is possible is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we're going to spend the next several years here. It's likely that we'll spend multiple years here. What a glory it will be because Christ is on every single That's what's going to make A father's heart filled with joy When he gets frustrated at home Jesus The wives Who want to rest in the sovereign power of the Lord They look again to Jesus And they see He's got this The mouths of the children How do they get filled with the praises of the king? By looking to the king even in their little childlike ways, with the little faith that they have, they open the Word of God, they read it, and they see Jesus. And then their mouths are filled with His praise. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. From Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. I think, was written by Paul, but there's a good chance that who was writing it down for him could have been Luke. And by the way, what does looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on, dirt, on Jesus do? Well, verse 1 of Hebrews 12 says it helps you to run the race with endurance. So, therefore, let us draw near with confidence each day with an open Bible in our laps to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy And find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. From cover to cover, it is a glory. It is perfect in every way. There is not one spot or blemish in it. And it is able to make us, the people, the men and women, the husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, children. It is able to make us in every way equipped into the image of Christ Jesus. Would you even now begin stirring in people's hearts a desire to press into this word in new ways? To begin studying it if they've been neglecting it? To begin memorization of it again if they've left off memorization? Or even start memorizing the Gospel of Luke verse by verse as a means of studying it and remembering it? And Lord, would you do as you've promised? and transform us through the seeing of Christ into his very image. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.